So two weeks ago, Pastor Brent uh, preached on um, Be Kind to One Another, the next in our series of One Another's. And I was thinking about the many times that God has been so kind to me. And the reason we know anything about kindness in the end is because he is so kind. So I kind of thought about my own walk over the years with him and how he's been there for me and convinced me time and again of his sweetness and his kindness. And then I thought how often in the Gospels we have stories that highlight Jesus' kindness. Over and over again, Christ's kindness just emerges as one of the themes of his interaction with people. And so this morning, this isn't exactly a one another, but it is about why we are to be kind. And I, I just want to spend some time talking about the kindness, and I'm calling it the powerful kindness of our Christ. One of the advantages of studying the Gospels and looking at the Gospel stories is that you see Jesus in a setting and in circumstances that you can kind of identify with. You can almost imagine yourself there in that room, walking that road with him, or standing with a great crowd on the seashore as he spoke, or following him way into the wilderness when he and his disciples were trying to get away, and there you are, showing up uh, thousands of thousands of you. I think, really, the Gospels are for this reason. And in fact, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us so we could know him in this way. And he could know us. And the Hebrews 4 passage that Ed mentioned says that, you know, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You see, before the Incarnation, God, in a very immediate and personal way, did not know what it felt like to be hungry or thirsty or weary or betrayed or in lack of anything. Jesus knows these things because he suffered them. The verse goes on to say that Jesus is tempted in all points, just as we are, one of the versions says, yet without sin. So we see our Christ, and we can identify with him. You know, one of my dreams and hopes for my own life, but for you all, and when we spent four years in the Gospel of Luke, I've said this a time or two, I would love it if I could become so familiar with some of these stories that I could kind of feel like I was in them. Um, you, you know how families, they get together and they tell stories about their family and they say things like, remember that time when Grandpa was going to get us a Christmas tree and he, he drove down the wrong street and he cut down a tree and it turned out to be that guy's lawn and he brought it back and everybody has a laugh and then, you know, a couple generations later they're still telling that story. Remember when Grandpa was actually great-great-grandpa? How wonderful would it be that we began to see the stories of Jesus like the one that we're studying this morning and could put ourselves there, that it almost became part of a collective memory, that we could say to one another, remember that time 
when Peter and his boys were out on the water all night and they couldn't catch a thing. And when morning light came there, Jesus was on the shore. Remember how he yelled at them, hey, drop your nets over there, boys. Man, you remember? So many fish, two boats started sinking. That's our Christ, man. How wonderful. Or what would it be like if you engaged your imagination as you studied and read? And at some point, God helping you, you could say, remember that time? Those folks were all sitting there in that little house. Oh, how awesome was it that Jesus was right there teaching away. And remember when Jesus kind of looked up at the roof and we all looked up and the roof started disappearing? Those four fellows were trying to bring their paralyzed buddy to Christ. They couldn't get in, so they just took the roof off and lowered him down. Wow! And Jesus didn't get mad at all. In fact, he forgave the guy's sins and healed him. I mean, actually, what... Why could that not happen? That Now, I, I don't know that most of us are going to be so familiar with a, any one of the Gospels that every story is like that. But I've got a few that I'm trying to work on. This is one of them, actually, this, this story in Luke 7, where when, when you think about Jesus walking 20 miles, you kind of imagine, what was that like? When did he start out? Was it hot? If I'd been there, would I have been sweating? You know, did I have a hat on? Yeah, probably. I need to. Um, kind of put yourself in the story. Maybe that could happen even this morning. So this is a great story. You know it well. It's a story about a poor widow who's lost her only son. And we catch what's happening we arrive just as the funeral procession is leaving the gates of the city. And, uh, and when Jesus shows up, everything changes. I mean, this is a story about the lordship of Christ is what it is. It's about how he's lord of life and death. Romans 14 9, Paul writes, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Well, so that is absolutely true. Jesus is Lord of life and death. And you see it here. But I don't want you to miss in that sweeping, soaring truth about our Christ, I don't want you to miss his kindness in this story. The small little story about a poor little woman who is as miserable and grief-stricken as a person can be. I want you to see her and see Jesus and see them together. So I want to go through this uh, and kind of highlight some things. It's a short story, and uh, Jean read it. I don't know if you put yourself in the action, but try to now. First thing I want to talk about is is Christ's plan. Verses 11 and 12. Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples in a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had 
died was being carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her so when you mention plan or I guess I mentioned plan you have to ask the question well what brought him here why I mean Nain was not someplace that you normally went do you ever did you grow up in a town like that I grew up in a town where people normally didn't go there <laughs> You know, you you ended up there on the way to somewhere else. There was no shopping in Nain. I mean, you didn't take a, a short holiday to go over to Nain. Uh, nothing compelling about it. So the, was Jesus just randomly wandering across the, the northern part of Palestine? Well, obviously not. So the question is, what brought him there? In fact... You see, in verse 11, it starts with soon afterward. The story right before this one is when Jesus is up in Capernaum on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there's a great miracle there, too. You remember the centurion, the Roman centurion, convinces some of his Jewish friends to approach Christ and say, you know, we got a friend, he's a centurion, but man, he's a good guy and his slave is sick. And he wants to ask you, but he's too shy, and he just wants us to ask, would you come and heal this guy? And Jesus, typical of Jesus, he drops everything and heads out. And then, as he's making his way to go and be with this guy, with his slave, the centurion sends word and says, look, I'm a man under authority. People do what I tell them to do, and I know you are too. All you have to do is say the word. You don't even have to bother seeing me or being in my house or even seeing my slave. Just say the word. And he did. So that's what happened at Capernaum. But you get the feeling in verse 11 that there was a certain amount of urgency. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. So why? It's 20 miles or so to Nain. So Jesus committed a day of walking a good seven, eight hours, and a bunch of other people did too. For what? Why? Did they know why they were going? I bet you not. Did Jesus know? Yeah. So let me ask it a different way. How come, how come Jesus showed up at Jacob's well in Samaria in the middle of the day, just as that woman, the Samaritan woman, showed up to draw water so she wouldn't see the other women of the town who hated her. Why? Or how come, how come in the last ten days of his life before the cross, Jesus went through Jericho? Well, I know why he went through Jericho. He, that was the trade route. He went over on the other side of the Jordan, down to Jericho. That's how you got to Jerusalem. So he's going to Jerusalem, but he spent a whale of a lot of time in Jericho that he didn't need to. Why? Obvious answer is, there was this woman in Samaria, and there was this little man in Jericho, and there was this poor woman and her dead son at Nain. And that's why. That's the plan. Our great God has this amazing ability to assure that his sweeping overarching purposes for this world this creation will be 
realized. To redeem this fallen creation by the blood of Christ himself. But it mind boggles us to the point where I, don't, I really can't factor it in, but I know it's true. Somehow he's able to attend to the ones he loves and upon whom he has set his affection before time began. And their stories are part of what he weaves into this great story. Before the beginning of time, I believe, he had a, a plan to go see that woman of Samaria and save her and send her back to tell the townspeople about it. And you remember that it's, it's in the next chapter, that storm at sea and all the Jesus, most of his disciples were experienced sailors. They almost drowned. The storm was so terrible that it almost sunk. Jesus had to supernaturally intervene and calm the storm. Why did they go through all of that? They'd just been through a hard day of ministry. They were exhausted. Jesus was so exhausted he fell asleep in the boat. Remember all that? Why? Because he said, we've got to go to the other side. On the other side was a demon-possessed man that he was going to deliver. Jesus came across time and space for people like you and me. And for this day, I don't know how long he was there, he committed to be there. I believe it was on his agenda from before there was ever a creation. And uh, as he drew near to the gate, verse 12 says of the town, behold, behold, when you read the word behold, it's kind of like, hey, wow, didn't expect that. That was amazing. That's kind of behold. Jesus didn't feel that way. That, the behold is for you and me. It's like we're walking along with Jesus. Why are we going down here? Nobody goes down to Nain. What's going on? Well, it's still a nice walk. You know, get to hang out with Jesus and all that. And then here comes the procession. It's kind of a big crowd. Somebody's died. Had to have died just that day. They, they didn't keep him overnight. No embalming for the Jews. They're going to bury this man the same day he died. He must have died early. So it's probably twilight. Takes eight hours probably to get there. So it's, it's late afternoon, early evening by the time they arrive. And you and I were walking along and we're going, whoa, there's a funeral. I wonder if we're interrupting anything. <laughs> yeah, behold, there's a funeral. Well, that was Jesus' plan, see. Maybe he's meeting with you and you don't even anticipate it. Maybe he's coming for you. All right, well, that lets me then talk about his kindness and compassion. Verses 12 and 13. As, they, as he drew near to the gate, I want to read that verse again of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. It looked like she had a lot of support, right? I mean, it was a big old crowd. Um, the rabbi said that any respectable funeral, even if it's a small one, even if it's in a place like Nain, had to have at least two flutes and a professional wailer. 
You know, you could get a job if you're good at wailing, you know, mourning and crying and whooping it up because you're, you know, they'd hire you, see. Just in case the family wasn't sad enough, you know, they've got a guy or a woman wailing away. So that's, and here's this woman, and she, nobody had to pay her to, to weep. She's, she's a widow already. Devastating in that culture, in this one too. And then her only son has just died. Her only support. It seems like she's got lots of support from the town, but that is not true. Uh, there is a great comment by one of the commentators here. I wanted to read to you. He writes, The large crowd posed an ironic contrast to her actual state. She was alone in this world without a provider or protector. Tomorrow she would awaken by herself, brokenhearted, without the sustaining footfall and sounds of her beloved son. There's a big whoop de doo and there's a professional mourner there and a couple of guys playing flutes or whatever. But tomorrow it all goes away. She has no means of support. She's going to end up as a beggar. And Jesus just happens to arrive at that point. And then verse 13, this is where the kindness and compassion of our Savior is so evident in when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. The word compassion is a very emotional word. When I was in Greek in seminary, I mean, my Greek professor said this word, um, well, it's a form of this word, it was the, I'll teach you a, a useless term, the nobler viscera. You know, you never thought of your viscera as nobler or ignoble or whatever. So, you know, the Greeks believed that the heart and lungs and liver and I don't know what all is up here. Some viscera, right? Some nobler viscera. That's the seat of your emotions. And so the meaning of this word is that it, it's when we say it broke my heart. We're talking about that. When we say, man, that was like a punch in the gut when I heard the news. I couldn't even believe it. That's what we're talking about. When it, it's like, man, that was like a sword ran through my whole life. That's what we're talking about. Um, every parent knows what it's like when your kid falls down and... Uh, you, when you see someone's child, especially your own, scrape a knee or run into a door or something, and you can tell there's that nanosecond before there's a shock, and then the child begins to wail, probably, you know, and that, and you feel that. If you care for that child, there is a physical thing that happens in your body. Your heart skips a beat. You, you catch your breath, your eyes filled with tears. That's compassion. It's the word Jesus used when he told the story about the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan was that Samaritan who passed 
along and saw this fellow who had been beaten almost to death and all these religious folks passed by and he had compassion. It hit him in the gut. My mom told me never to say gut in public, you know. But she said that like 50 years ago, so I'm thinking maybe you'll give me a pass because there's a whole lot of other things being said in public <laughs> by preachers. Um, anyhow, the same, same word appears. Remember Jesus told another story about the prodigal son, how he, Dad, give me the inheritance, I'm out of here. He takes it and squanders it with rough living. That was the story Jesus told. And the dad, the dad we learn is always waiting. He's always looking. He's always there, hoping and believing that his son will come back. And then it says, when the, when the son finally, you know, humbled himself, and, and his shame was great, but his need for help was greater. And so dad saw him while he was still a long way off. And he had compassion on him. And he started running, and he ran toward his boy. Well, that's this word. Actually, the word was... Same word uh, in uh, Pastor Brent's uh, sermon in the, the last verse of Ephesians 4. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted." It's that word. So what I'm saying is, ladies and gentlemen, our Savior felt the pain of this woman. I mean, you can be motivated by kind of a clinical understanding that you should help because you have the resources, you know. And there are people like that, and they don't get emotionally connected. And if you're in a medical field, you've got to somehow be able to distance yourself from the pain and suffering, or else you won't be able to do your job. So I get all that. That's not, but that's not what happened with Jesus. I mean, it, it got to him. Did he know he was going to see this? Yeah, for about a million years. What happened when he saw her? It got to him. I, I'm not saying that's the way you should be. Well, kind of, I, I guess I am. You may not be a very emotional person. That's okay. It's help anyway. I'm just telling you what our Savior's like. And he is compassionate and kind. And you see the kindness in his interaction with this woman. When he saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Don't weep. Don't cry. I think he said it like that. I mean, you could say don't cry in a lot of ways. Don't cry. Come on, get up. What are you, baby? You know, parents go through a thing where the first couple of kids, you know, get a splinter, off we go to the emergency room. Uh, third or fourth kid, you know, they got a big gash in their arm, you know, blood's flowing. They say, hey, wash it off with the garden hose. Quit crying, you baby. Get up. Well, that's not how Jesus talked. That's not what he said. He, he looked at this poor woman and he said, don't cry. Don't cry. Because he was about to do something. And uh, we get to see what. I feel like time kind of slowed down here. If you and I had been here, I mean, we're walking and talking and telling jokes and singing songs and just the joy of being with the Savior. We walked all this 20 miles and we show up. It's, we're tired. It's almost bedtime. We're thinking, man, I hope they have some, you know, motels in this place or whatever. And uh, then there's a the funeral and then everything kind of shifts. And it's all of a sudden kind of weird. And Jesus comes near to this woman 
Yeah, it's very quiet. And he says to her, don't cry. So then, um, verse 14, then he came up and touched the beer. Beer is not a word we, well, not spelled this way is that we use too often. It is pronounced like the, uh, well, you know. Then he came up and touched. It's a plank. It's not a casket. It is a plank. I don't want to skip over, then he came up. Now, this is a, this is a normal word. It's a compound word to approach or come near or step up or something like that. But what I discovered, I looked up every reference in the, new t- in the Gospels, rather, and almost every time it's used, it's used to mean something is about to happen. Usually it's about people approaching, coming near to Christ and hoping they'll be healed or whatever. There are, I think, three, maybe four other times in the entire Gospels where this same word is used of Christ coming near as it is here. Then he came up, then he approached. And in every case, the authority and power of Jesus is about ready to bust through. He is about to speak or to act in a way that reveals his power and authority. And so when you read this, when Luke wrote this down, and the Spirit of God chose the vocabulary he was going to use. Man, it was significant. Then he came up and he touched this plank, this stretcher. That was a very big deal. Um, the, the, the ceremonial law made it really clear. It's hard to get any more unclean than touching a dead body. If you touch a dead body, or if you touch something that has touched a dead body, you're out of commission for a week. You can't go to work. You can't hang out with anybody. you got to go through a ritual purification. You are regarded as a person that it doesn't even belong among uh, godly people. And that is, that's it. Uh, you, you have no recourse. And so nobody would have ever intentionally touch that beer unless they were authorized like the guys carrying it. Jesus, I don't think Jesus was flaunting convention, like, hey, I don't care about the law. I don't think that was it. I think really Christ just didn't give it a thought. He's about to do a miracle, friends. And why didn't he touch the young man? Well, he could have, and he's done that in the past. But I think he touched this beer just to kind of settle things down. And you notice what happens. The bearers stood still. You better believe it. Everybody stood still. They were carrying, you know, going out. It's our job. We're the casket people, pallbearers. And then here comes this man. Did they know who Jesus was? Well, likely, Nazareth is only six miles away, another small out-of-the-way place. So even though he's come 20 miles from Capernaum, I mean, he hung out in Nazareth, grew up in Nazareth. So um, they, they may have known who he was, but it was like, whoa, what's he doing? He's interrupting a funeral. He's stopping. He's talking to this. What's going to happen? 
man, can you imagine yourself being there? I think that the hair on the back of your neck starts standing up a little bit. I think there's an electricity in the twilight. I think you feel like maybe you're holding your breath. What's going to happen? What's he going to do? See this woman? Reminds you of your own mom, maybe. You feel bad for her. Well, Jesus obviously felt bad, but he is going to do something. And then he speaks. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. You ever watch on YouTube or sometimes on TV some of these healing services, giant churches whose main ministry is a, quote, healing ministry, and uh, people line up, you know, and then, the, and then the guy who's, you know, the really highfalutin guy is wearing a special suit and all that stuff, and he's, he's doing his thing, and sometimes he's smacking them in the head. Usually they go down, you know, and uh, maybe God's at, at work. I hope he is. I notice Jesus doesn't do any of that stuff. It's not, it's not a big ceremony. It's not, there's not a lot of drama here. He speaks to the woman, puts his hand on the, on the plank, and then he addresses. He's the last guy you'd talk to. I mean, who talks to a dead body? Well, I suppose people do it at funerals. They say, oh, I'm sorry that I was such a jerk to you all and all just, you owe me 10 bucks, but, you know, or whatever you say. But most people, most people don't, I'm sorry. Yeah, these are the times when I should have just brought my manuscript up and read it, so. <laughs> um, most of us don't tell the dead person to do anything because we know they're past that. Come on, get up now. Come on, come on, Ma. Get up. You know, it'd be cruel to even do that. People would, you'd be nuts. Jesus said, young man, young man means this young single adult. He's, he's taking care of his mom. He's not yet married. What a tragedy that he's done. Young man, I say to you, arise. Just like he spoke to Jairus' daughter. Little girl, be healed, you know. That, just like he spoke to, um, I mean, he spoke the world into being. This is not hard for him. Could he have done it back in Capernaum and saved himself a trip? Well, yeah, he just proved that. He just healed a guy, a slave, and didn't even go over there. He just did it. So why did he go to exercise his power face to face? Well, I think it was, I just think Jesus loves this woman and her son, and he wanted to be there to take care of him. I think the divine timetable, which was only a three-year window to get everything done, included this moment and a walk that took eight hours and another eight hours back, unless I, I'm not sure where, where the next spot he goes to is. But in any case, um, and do you notice, too, Jesus gave him to his mother. Isn't that our Christ? Isn't that Jesus? I mean, 
Don't you love him? Isn't, isn't this why we love him? He says, to, he says to this mom, don't cry. Don't cry. And then he says, mom, come on over here. Come on over here. Here's your boy. Come on, you guys. It's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay now. Don't we love Jesus? This is, and, and the, to the degree that this becomes part of your collective memory, you share it with all the Christians who've ever read this story and all the ones who were there, uh, how great it is to be able to call this up in the middle of the night. You don't have to open your Bible and you don't have to have memorized it word for word. You just need to know very closely what the flow of it is and you can see it, and you can be there uh, worshiping him. All right, so I got only one more thing to point out, and it has to do with his reputation. Um, the dead man sat up and began to speak. Jesus gave him back to his mother. So then, verses 16 and 17 reflect on what happened as a result of this. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. See, they had it right to a degree. They, they, a great fear. This is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is the fear that causes us to run to God, not from Him. This is the fear that causes us to bow down and to respect Him and love Him and adore Him and bow before Him. This is the fear that leads to our worship of our great God. This is the fear that doesn't take Him lightly and doesn't presume upon the freedom we have to come into His presence. We still honor Him and, uh, and treat Him as best we know how as our sweetest but most powerful God in flesh Savior. You know. So they said, hey, um, a prophet... Well, that's their reference point. You see, these folks, the last time they heard about in the history of God's people, miracles and people being raised from the dead, Elijah and Elisha. So they said, hey, it's like Elijah and Elisha. He's a prophet. Well, Jesus is a prophet technically, but far more than that. The second thing they said was maybe a little more on the mark. And God has visited his people. You better believe it. And not just in the generic sense of God visiting Jesus walked 20 miles to be here. He visited his people, all right. He visited one poor widow woman who was just at the end of a rope and couldn't have gone on much further. And he visited a dead guy, and it wasn't his time. By the way, people quibble about the term resurrection. And some people would rather call this a resuscitation. Because this young man is going to, we believe, we trust, will live out his life and then die. And then there is a resurrection where um, we will be raised to newness of life. We'll have resurrection bodies. So that wasn't this. So maybe it was just a resuscitation, you know, like somebody um, loses consciousness or they've been in a terrible shock or electrical shock or something. And, and somebody comes along and does one of these and guts gets their heart going again or they got or whatever. And uh, gosh, I had, wish I had one of those right now. I would test it out on y'all. Just come on up. 
Um, probably I wouldn't, but, uh, well, I don't feel like that's what we're looking at. I mean, this guy has been dead for hours. You know, he's been dead for probably, I mean, they waited till evening. He might have been dead, might have been sick a long time. We don't know what the circumstances were. But it wasn't like, well, if we get it to him now, we can start his heart again. No, this was a miracle. And so whatever you want to call it, I, I don't think I'd call it a resuscitation. I'm happy calling it a resurrection, but not the final one. Anyway, verse 16, fear seized them. They glorified God, which is what's supposed to happen when we are so impressed with our God. We're supposed to be unable to contain ourselves, and we tell people, you know, you, you can't believe what, what our God did. We're praying for eight people now who, who are really sick, and God's at work, and it's wonderful. Um, in verse 17, this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And so his reputation comes from his greatness and glory. And we're part of that. Um, was this for them? Well, yeah, but it was also for his glory. In fact, that's the wrong order, really. The best thing about us is that we get to glorify him. And we're never more ourselves, never happier, never full, more full of peace. It's when we are correctly aligned in praising him, forgetting about ourself for a moment or two. And bringing glory to him. It strikes me too that this whole story is an image of spiritual life as well. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we are spiritually corpses. And so it is right and proper that we plead with people to be saved and show them reasons why the Bible is true and the Christ has changed our lives. That's our job. That's what we should do. But never forget that unless Christ speaks a word to a dead soul, they're not going to sit up and listen and speak. And there will be no faith and repentance unless God first quickens that person. And I see that happening. I see that's what happened to this guy. Um, don't ever think that sinners are just people who are sick with sin. Now they're dead. That's what the scripture says. So we see a miracle every time, whenever you got saved, whenever that was, that's what, this is what happened to you. He came near and he spoke a word to you. And then, you may not have been aware of it, but all of a sudden you wanted to trust him and you wanted to believe him. And you ran to him. And repentance and faith was the inevitable, glorious conclusion to the action that our Savior took in crossing time and space to come and speak to you. I say to you, arise. Well, I want to conclude by going back to that um, verse 14, then he came up. Jesus came up and something is about to happen. When he comes up like this, the dead are raised. And 
the broken are healed and the grieving are comforted. And I wonder, I wonder if he's coming near to you. I mean, I, I can't see him. It was helpful to be able to walk with him for 20 miles and see him, right? We can't necessarily see him right now, but I wonder if he's coming near to you. You got some brokenness? You got some spiritual deadness that needs to be raised up? Are you full of grief and heartache? Fear? I'd like to help you. I, I could be a, one of the mourners. If you hire me, I could wail. <laughs> but the person who really can help you is Jesus. And he wants to. Don't take for granted that we're just about done. He's here for sure. We already know that. I wonder if he's coming near to you. I don't want you to miss it. Let's pray, and as we do, let's be quiet before the Lord for a minute. Lord Jesus, Thank you for preserving this story so that we can take it to our heart and see your heart. Thank you for showing us this poor widow woman who was bereft of her son. Thank you for showing us your kindness and compassion, your tender-hearted work in her life. Thank you for caring about somebody in some backward place I know this is who you are. Your kindness just blows me away. And Lord, I, I just pray that if there's somebody here, maybe a bunch of us, need to know that you are coming near and about ready to do something. We just want to look up and see you. Whatever you want to do, may your will be done. Save us, forgive us, heal us, protect us, cleanse us, humble us, deal with our pride, break through our pretenses. Come near Lord Jesus, the kindest, most lovely person we've ever known. Have your way with us. Speak that word that brings life to those who are dead. We pray in your name. Amen.